0: This evening I'd like to speak about death sometimes known as the Great Motivator The reality of death is something that's given great importance in Dharma Teaching something that's seen as having a real significance and potency for why we engage in this whole field of what we call spiritual work and exploration and it was interesting when this uh, Guy House, which was the second home of Guy House which is, it, we, we used to um, have a somewhat smaller place across the uh, fields about two miles away in Denbury and when we came and were looking at buying this place from the order of nuns that lived here prior and who had just uh, really come down to being very few in number and therefore felt not to maintain the building but for us it was actually a real asset that there was a graveyard in the uh, lawn behind this this hall for the other purchasers it was who were sort of thinking of holiday homes or retirement villages um, (laughs) it wasn't quite such a a sort of an interesting or useful item to have on their premises (laughs) And I think in the, uh, the eventual decision of the nuns to sell us the place, although there are many factors in it uh, I think one of them was that for us we were actually really happy to, to have the uh, members of their order resting there and in fact part of the deal is that uh, the remainder of the nuns of that order as and well when they die will be buried in the, in the small graveyard just outside. And, uh, in fact a couple of years ago that took place and uh, we, we had a, a ceremony there and of course across the, uh, across the other side of the grounds and near the little old dilapidated chapel there's another graveyard, a little older and more heavily populated and these, having such things around us not sort of putting them out of sight is a really important and useful reminder to us that we are not forever just the vulnerability of our human condition, the unknownness of just how it's all going to work out for us when the burial took place a couple of years ago the elderly sisters, nuns were buried and I remember just looking out to see the kind of little mound of soil that rose up above the plot where she had been buried and just the sense of that, that little amount of soil that stuck up was how much her body had displaced. And within the coffin I guess as well. So but it was just kind of like just a little lump. We were just thinking the body, gosh, it just becomes the equivalent of a little pile of soil. That's about all the room it's taken up in there. And just something about what that Signifies for us that it's really easy to not clearly acknowledge to ourselves in the Indian classic the Mahabharata there's a, a story that relates a conversation between the hero Arjuna and Krishna who is the, uh, in this story the sort of a manifestation of wisdom and uh, happens to be Anjuna's charioteer in the midst of a great battle and the particular conversation is related as, as follows Anjuna turns to Krishna and says Krishna with your vast vision of the universe and all your great wisdom what is the, great miracle, the greatest miracle in this world? And Krishna responds to Arjuna by saying, the greatest miracle is that while all around them people see others dying, they do not believe it will happen to themselves. And somehow it's so true that while we know it in another level, another way, we don't quite know or we don't quite live as though we know the truth of that reality. And in the Buddhist tradition, there's a, an encouragement to really contemplate this, to really reflect on it. And it actually suggests to go so far as to wander into graveyards and cemeteries and, and contemplate the, the bodies that have been buried there. And in the time of the Buddha, they didn't bury them under the ground, but in the the charnel grounds, bodies would just be left. And the suggestion was to contemplate them when they're freshly dumped. And after they started to sort of... Get a bit older and slightly smelly and essentially as skeletons and eventually as dust and sound kind of horrible and macabre to our sort of kind of genteel Western sensibility. And yet the reflection that goes with it isn't to horrify ourselves, but the reflection that is suggested in this is to recognize that this body will not escape that condition. This will come to me or to this body. It will not escape. It will look like this one day. And there's something very sobering about that, something very powerful about that. It's not intended to be macabre, or gruesome, or horrifying, but it's actually profoundly awakening. And of course, in in the West this is recognized too. I recently read about a, a tradition of in the Middle Ages, uh, I think the early part of the Middle Ages, where it was common for people on their on their gravestones to have an epitaph carved as follows, and obviously these would be people who, you know, had enough money to have a stone sort of stuck on top of their grave, and probably some education, maybe not. But what it read was actually, I thought, quite quite an interesting thing to me if one should be walking in the graveyard, and much of the same spirit. That the, the lines went, Remember, friends, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. Prepare yourself to follow me. <laughs> and interestingly enough, although we kind of, in our culture, tend to keep it at a safe distance, because it seems scary when we actually come a little bit closer to it it can be scary but it's also actually quite profoundly exciting it stirs something in us to really let ourselves look at this reality and that's where the potency is the fact of death actually asks us to look at life really keenly, really with interest And in, the, in the, sort of the Buddhist traditions of the Far East, uh, the Zen and Chan traditions, they talk about, uh, in China, Japan, Taiwan, Korea, they talk about the great matter of birth and death as being the fundamental question of life about all the spiritual practices about the great matter of birth and death. And we, we can perhaps, through this reflection, sense the preciousness of life, of existence to not take it for granted to not presume that it will continue until it's come to some suitable, tidy and you know predictable conclusion because it doesn't always happen that way and even when it does it's never quite like the way you expected it to be at least so it seems from the stories one reads and none of us have actually gone through that process ourselves can really know what that will be until the time comes So it's not so much that we dwell on the fact of our death because we don't really know what that is but that we dwell on the fact of our life that we really look to see what is this about and again, what's really important here in this situation? Because it does give us a lot of perspective with regard to what we really want to spend our time and energy on, given that it's finite. What do we want to make most important? In a passage in the book um, by Don Juan, the uh, by sorry, Carlos Caneda about don juan don Juan I guess it's more correctly pronounced teachings of don juan he, he, he speaks of it he says to Carlos at one point death is your eternal companion it is always the hunter and it is always to your left at an arm's length it has always been watching and it always will until the day it taps you. How can you feel so important when you know that your death is stalking you? The thing to do when you are impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you catch a glimpse of it or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. The act of your death is never pressed far enough it is the only wise advisor that you have and whenever you feel that everything is going wrong and that you are about to be annihilated turn to your death and ask if that is so your death will tell you that you are wrong that nothing really matters outside of its touch your death will tell you I haven't touched you yet to ask death's advice it's to drop the curse of pettiness that belongs to men and women who live their lives as if death will never happen. So much of our life can seem to, without our intending or seeking it to be so, can seem to get caught up by things that really aren't the most important things to us. And we know that if we ask ourselves. But too easily we forget to ask ourselves what's really important. We find ourselves really struggling with you know, whether we like the food or not that happens to be offered at our home or the place we're visiting or wherever. Or we really struggle with just really relatively minor degrees of discomfort or irritation or just not liking the way something is. and if we really just stop and think about our life and its amazing preciousness as a gift that we haven't had to pay for, we're not being billed for it it's something that's offered to us in all of its challenges and equally its beauty we can actually find an appreciation for our life for our companions, for ourselves that can actually accommodate the imperfections in ourselves and others in the world with much more ease and grace and it can profoundly inform the way we relate to each other there's a story of a of what of a, it's, a, it's a true story about a uh, A workshop in a in a prison in America. All the prisoners were on death row. And these are some of the toughest and in some people's eyes nastiest human beings in the country. People who'd committed horrendous crimes of violence against other people. And it was remarked upon that these people in this place they, they had a workshop where they would um you know, they would they would make things that, you know. I don't, know, the things that make me, I don't know if they still sew mailbags or things like that, but sort of creating, doing small, small works of craft and uh, productive activity. And it was noticed and remarked upon by someone who visited once that there was this incredible atmosphere of kindness and gentleness. And the person was so struck by it because these were people who had, in many cases, by their own admission, committed horrendous acts of cruelty and violence and harm. And so he asked one of the inmates, he said, This is amazing to me. You're so respectful. You're so kind to each other. There seems to be so much love here. I don't understand. Because, of course, much of the story of what goes on in prisons is violence and brutality, and oppression and exploitation. Amongst different prisoners, the stronger against the weaker." And it's so different here. And the prisoner looked at him and said, you know, it's quite simple. Because we all know that each of us is going to die. And there's something remarkably beautiful about the transformation that could come to even what perhaps may have been incredibly hardened hearts. To just be living in an environment where because they're on their throne, they know, they can't kid themselves, about the inevitability of death. And the Buddha himself once said, with regard to two groups of villagers who were fighting and seeking to go to war, he said, knowing that all of you will one day die, how can you quarrel? There's something about our humanity that's revealed in its impermanence, in its tamperiness, that is so profoundly more significant than the various things we might argue about or that we might feel us, or divide us from each other that we will all pass through that doorway one day is something of such great significance that we share that it, in many ways it overshadows all the different things that appear to separate and divide us it is larger and more profound than all of that and if we actually see that, if we actually recognize that then it can really allow us to open our hearts to all the beings of this world with whom we share the fact of death and so in the story of the Buddha he speaks of the four heavenly messengers who came in his life as a prince and privilege and comfort and luxury who came to him that he had contact with that inspired him to set out on a spiritual journey. And one was a sick person, one was an aged person, one was a court, and one was a, a wandering mendicant spiritual seeker and the sense of recognising that this will happen to us really I think is what opens our eyes to the greater questions of life but it also really informs how we would wish to live today because how would we have wished to have lived if we knew that this was our last day if there wasn't to be another one what we would, would we have wished to have embodied to have sought to deepen in our life, What's really important? And perhaps there are three key fields or areas we might reflect upon. What have we learned in our life? What have we understood? Learning is the process of growing, the flowering of our, our life. how much of a priority have we made it to learn what we can to deepen in wisdom how much have we managed to let go seeing that the tendency towards grasping hold on contraction born of grasping or resisting seeing how much suffering that creates, how much separation, how much pain how much contraction How deeply have we been able to surrender to the way things are? This is a big question to ask ourselves. The degree to which we are able to let go is the degree to which we are able to be free in life. And how well have we loved? How fully and wholeheartedly have we loved? This question again, a question we might find ourselves asking ourselves, If it should be, do we know our time has come? We don't always. How well have we lost? Stephen Levine, in his book A Year to Live, related for himself one of the conclusions of his year where he spent as an exercise, living as though that year would be his last, making his decisions with no thought to any point beyond one year. So that would really be the end. And he said in the end love was the only rational action of a lifetime. Love was the only rational action of a lifetime. That in the end how we would wish to have lived would be that our choices and our actions were born of love, of caring of well-wishing for oneself and for others. So death is a support for letting go. It invites us to that, because one day all that we have will be taken from us. Everything that is meant to us will be separa- separated from us. This is really what it means. All that is known, all that is familiar, all that we regard as precious, will one day not be there. We don't really know what that will be like. But one thing we might understand from it is that it really doesn't make so much sense to try and hold on to things. And with possessions, we might have a sense of wanting to share what we have because it's all going to be shared eventually so we can actually take joy in that reality by sharing what we have we might wish to cultivate forgiveness to see that we wouldn't wish to carry hardness in our heart to anything or anyone in our life and forgiveness is a I think a really important Part of our practice and our equally our preparation for the ending of our lives Sometimes it seems so difficult it's like we get caught somehow by our anger by the the feeling that anger is justified because we've been harmed and hurt and perhaps someone has done so intentionally it appears anger towards others, anger towards ourselves for our own mistakes such a corrosive condition, so painful and yet sometimes we cling to it so tightly can't let it go Forgiveness is a gift that allows us to free our heart from the shadow of past pain and in that regard I'd like to relate a a kind of an image or an understanding that I find really helpful in relating to the fact that we at times ourselves have caused pain to others and that others have caused pain to ourselves which is the basis for which anger and a hardening of the heart seems to come from if we look well perhaps tell the scenario, the, the image if one, you can just imagine this as, as, I, as I tell us um, going for a walk in the uh, in the woods perhaps near Sky House down one of the lanes and into the little woods that there are and as you're walking you see a small puppy hmm. enjoying young small creatures and puppies and one just has a sense of friendliness and interest towards it and would maybe just reach out to stroke it as we would and as you reach out to stroke it it just jumps up and bites your hand, quite painfully, deeply, drawing blood. And what's the reaction to it? Having just been bitten by a small puppy, but like, you know, maybe we want to strike it. Maybe we say something. You know, we call it something, and we feel like that puppy. What's it doing? It's biting me. It's <laughs> it a piece of the lesson, guy. You know, and just in that moment of reaction, we see that its foot is caught. In one of those traps with the jaws on spring, you know, they use tragically for catching wild animals. And, and in that moment, what happens? We realize it's not trying to hurt us. It's afraid, it's in pain. It's actually trying to get help. Or it's just reacting blindly to its condition. And immediately we just, ah, oh, what we actually feel moved to do is to help it, to release it from the trap to destroy that which was harming, get rid of the trap we don't actually want to hurt the puppy we don't feel angry towards the puppy perhaps towards whoever laid the trap imagine again the same scenario perhaps a few months later so we've forgotten about the last time walking in the woods it's autumn now that was summer we see a puppy there amongst the trees we reach out to stroke it, it bites us again reaction comes, but just in that moment and looking at it we see that it's up to its shoulders and legs, we can't see its feet. What would it be for us to understand in that moment that it's foot was in the trap so we couldn't see it? That it is not of the nature of puppies to seek to bite, to harm, unless they're in pain themselves, in fear of themselves and reacting to that. Because that is the nature of being. It is not the nature of being to wish to cause harm to others. Except that they're caught in their own pain and their own blindness and somehow striking out, even it seems quite intentionally, but nonetheless driven at some level unconsciously by trying to escape their own pain, their own fear, and in their own blindness causing suffering. If one looks at one's own life, and I've certainly spent time reflecting for myself any of us, if we look at our life, we'll see we've caused harm to others There's no doubt about it Not one of us can live their life without impacting others We certainly perhaps caused pain to ourselves as well But if we really look carefully, I think we'll see that when we did so, it was our own pain that caused us to act that way Or our own longing, which is just another form of pain, that causes us to act in the way that causes harm to another or ourselves. That actually in blindly seeking to escape from our condition we can cause harm to others. And equally others in blindly seeking to escape from their pain cause harm to us. It's like sometimes when we can see the pain that the being is in it's quite clear to us what's going on but most of the time we can't most of the time we can't see the pain that we or another person is in in the moment when we act and cause that harm or they act and harmed us or our ones who are dear to us we can't see what that pain is But if we understand the nature of our own being, and the nature of all beings, we can perhaps come to understand that those acts of violence that cause harm, or thoughtlessness or carelessness that cause harm, even sometimes well-intentioned, they actually come from a place of pain and blindness that actually asks for our compassion, our compassion towards ourselves, towards others and ask for our response to be one to seek to free that being ourselves from the pain that causes the action rather than to condemn the action or the actor for it having happened when we are to leave this world probably some of the most important things will be the sense of how fully we've tried to live without causing harm to others. Commitment to, to non-harming is a basic intention, a fundamental current within our being. So important. Not just because it makes us feel safe or be- better now. Peace of mind cannot be separa- separated from our actions. It's not some moral code. It's because of very direct, pragmatic reality. We cannot intentionally cause harm and actually be at peace. It doesn't work that way. It simply stirs up the pain and the blindness from which the actions that cause harm arose and intensifies it. Doing our best to not cause harm. We can sense quality or a possibility of no regret, which isn't some kind of I've been perfect all my life sort of thing, or pride in that way but there's just a humble recognition of having done, again, one's best and not demanding perfection A sense of completion to have remembered what it means to complete our intentions, our aspirations doesn't mean we can do everything we set out to but that in our relationships we, we remember to affirm our love for those that we love to find forgiveness as much as possible to say goodbye and remember that every goodbye may be the actual goodbye that is the last one for many years my wife Catherine and I when we would as we did often in fact with uh, myself travelling quite a lot teaching and equally sometimes on our day to day partings for the day we were just at the moment of parting just take a moment to look each other in the eye and say I hope I see you again because we did and and we all do that but most of us take it for granted that we will and yet one doesn't know when one will see a loved one again if ever Good friend of mine a few years ago. She was just at home. Her husband, about my age, perfect good health, walking in one of the other rooms, collapsed and just died, just like that. Had a blood clot to the brain and passed out, gone within three months. And there was no warning, no back nothing. Left her with a young child. I don't know what their last words were But just taking the chances that we have to say what's really important to those we care for part of a preparation for dying that is actually also about living well Living very close to our truth And at the same time, to reflect on our relationship to the fact of death. So, while at one level, yes, everything that we know will disappear, we don't know what that will actually mean or be. What we do know is that there isn't really any reference point for the sense of self in the idea of death. The fact of I dying kind of The problem with death is that I isn't going to be there anymore. That's a serious problem. And yet, it's actually, the fear of death is the thought of it. The thought that says, I'm not going to be there. Or, those I care for aren't going to be there. This is actually a thought. It's not actually death itself. And the only way we can actually face what it means that our life ends in death is to face the unknown of where we are the uncertainty, the ambiguity, the uncontrollability to actually die to our past into this moment where we are right now this is actually what makes us alive the Buddha once said mindfulness is the path to the deathless those who are heedless live as though they are already dead paying attention cultivating our capacity to be awake this is ultimately the most profound response to the fact of our birth, our life and our death not holding on to our experience not trying to control the conditions around us because we can't seeking of course to cultivate qualities that are wholesome beneficial in our lives and our hearts seeking to support conditions in the world in our relationships, in our circumstances that we feel contribute to well-being of course so important <coughs> and yet at the same time recognizing that all of this is not forever the fact of change, that the Buddha described as the elephant's footprint all things that come go and the elephant's footprint, or cryptic perhaps the elephant footprint, the truth of change is like the elephant's footprint because the elephant footprint is the footprint that encompasses all other footprints It's larger than all of them If you place it over the tiger or the, the donkey or the whatever, the goat I think of any animals from the Buddha's time in India um, <laughs> That's probably what he would have said it encompasses them. And likewise the truth of change, of which death is simply one aspect, encompasses all truth. And yet having said that, if we really understand this deeply, this is what allows us to let go, to not hold on. And in that letting go, we can come to discover in the depth and the fullness of that letting go we can come to understand that which is not of the realm of birth and death the timeless, deathless truth of life A poem I'd like to read by a Native American elder called Red Hawk. "For the time comes when it is easier to die. We have to go deeper inside, like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we have had enough, and it is no longer worth it to get up out of the bed. The morning is cold." The grey clouds move in low like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That is when we have to go deeper, through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Friends will die or their nerves will fail. Women will cease to be thrilled with you, and your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You will still tremble in the leg, go grey and dim in the face, leak more every year in your yellowed shawl. Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it is easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you, and then to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken, while death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything inside, but only left holding a bag full of bones. To sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken. while death storms and rages all around you stealing everything inside but only left holding a bag full of bones this isn't a trick perhaps art might have been a word I would have preferred that's not the translation the art of dying into this moment if we hold on to nothing then all those things that can be taken we find do not ultimately touch or in any way take away from the fundamental truth of life to understand to understand deeply what it means to be here to have taken birth into this existence we are asked to let go profoundly Aiton Cha, the great Thai forest meditation teacher and master who lived in the last century died in the early nineties. He once said Let go a little and you'll know a little peace. Let go a lot and you'll know a lot of peace. Let go completely and you'll know complete peace and natural freedom. This is the practice of Dharma may you all deepen in your understanding of what truly matters may you all deepen in your capacity to awaken into this moment May all beings be touched by the timeless, deathless truth of life